morning. This morning's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 2, the first 13 verses. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our, in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Thanks, Carol. Very well read. Coral's husband, Graham, is heading off to Bangladesh tomorrow for a few weeks. So I'm going to pray for us as we hear God's word this morning, but I also want to pray for him, that he might have both safe travel and effective ministry while he's there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that we are again together. Thank you for your word and your spirit. We thank you for each other. We pray for our brother Graham that you would give him safety in travel, keep him healthy and free from disease and illnesses. And we pray that you would give him uh, wonderful times with you and spiritual experience and use him, Lord, as your servant. Go before him, give him helpful kingdom conversations and use him to encourage the saints there and bring him home safe, we pray. We pray likewise for ourselves that you would teach us and be pleased to fill us with your spirit and to use us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. I put those things here at the front because uh, some of you don't know me and I was just joking. They're not for my grandkids. They're too. The toys are really nice. They are nice things, so... Come and get them at the end um, if they're yours. Today we're looking at Acts chapter 2. We're working our way through Acts. We're not going to go chapter a week. We're going to spend the next two or three weeks in chapter 2. We're just looking at the first bit of it today and we'll revisit it next week. Um, and the focus is going to be as we work through Acts to observe what did God do with the early church and because that's what he continues to do through his church today. And we, our focus this year is, of course, being God's chosen instruments. Well, from Acts chapter 2, we are spirit-filled instruments. As we are filled with a spirit, controlled by God's spirit, then we are far more effective instruments in his hands to do what he wanted. If the question is asked, when did the church begin? 
theologians have been discussing this one for a long time and different people from different theological perspectives come up with different answers. Some people of course say the church began at Pentecost, that Pentecost is the church's birthday. That's not wrong, that's not a bad description of it. But others could also argue actually the church began in the mind of God even before there was creation. You'll have to forgive me, this microphone keeps moving on me. Some would say it began in the mind of God before creation. Some would say it began in the Garden of Eden when Adam was in fact in fellowship with God. That's the beginning of the church, God's intention. Others would say, no, the church began when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. God called him to leave his... And they were quite well developed at that time, around about 2000 BC in Mesopotamia in Ur. And they had... uh, underfloor heating, they had running water in their houses and God said I want you to leave that and I want you to go live in a tent to the land that I am going to show you and Abraham was fully obedient to it. Maybe the church began when God took Israel out of Egypt after the Passover and through the Red Sea paralleling baptism and the Lord's Supper. Church could have begun when others say when Jesus called the 12 disciples apostles to come follow him. Some would say the church was First form when Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection in the upper room and he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit, John chapter 20. Certainly at Pentecost, the church was there already. They were gathered together. They were followers of the Lord Jesus who had witnessed his resurrection from the dead and they believed in him. They were called, they were constructed and they were brought together. But at Pentecost, something significant happens. That's when the church is, if not born, then certainly launched. It's blast-off time. It's from this point on that the motors are ignited and the church starts to spread out, to start to cross cultural lines, because it was primarily up to this point, obviously, Jewish, with some smatterings into Samaria and into the Ten Cities, Gadarean area. Um, But when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, the early church, this early gathering of people, then he empowered them to go out and to witness boldly, which is what happens in chapter 2. And we've been going out ever since. Just like Adam in the Garden of Eden was made by God, constructed by God, and then God breathes into him the breath of life. So the church is formed. And now at Pentecost, God is breathing into the church the breath of life, the Spirit of God to empower it. Um, and if we didn't have Acts chapter 2 then we would have to be doing a fair bit of guessing because the rest of the New Testament won't make sense the transition from the Gospels and the resurrection of Jesus removed Acts chapter 2 and you've suddenly got this church these people doing all these sorts of things what happened in here? well we know what happened in here because God has told us in Luke chapter 2 particularly before I move into this passage I just want to also point this out I can't get it to work. Luke acts in peril. I'll have to get you to do it, Derek. I don't think this thing's going to work properly. There's a parallel between the two volumes of Luke and Acts. Luke, of course, is the author of both the Gospel and this history of the early church, the book of Acts. They both begin with a prologue in which Mary is rather prominent, Luke 1 and 2, as well as Acts chapter 1. They both begin with an anointing, a baptism of the Spirit, both upon the Lord Jesus and upon the church. And then comes the preaching 
and going forth in that power. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, it says, The Lord Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. This is after being tested in the wilderness by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. He returned in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of God filled him, anointed him, empowered him. And news about him spread throughout the region. And in fact, when Nazareth, Jesus goes to the synagogue and he opens the scriptures. And the passage he goes deliberately looking for, scrolling through Isaiah, found this passage and he wrote it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me for what? to proclaim, to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom, a recovery of sight, and to proclaim the, good, the goodness of God to the nations. So when the Spirit of God came upon the Lord Jesus, it was an empowerment to declare truth, as well as to do things, but to declare truth, so too for the early church. It's when the Spirit of God comes upon the church that we are empowered to witness, to declare, to share, to give the invitation, as Ryan Valley was teaching us last Sunday. The parallel between Luke and Acts is remarkable. It's like we're reading the story again, second edition. Except the main difference is Jesus has changed bodies. He's no longer here physically. He's now here spiritually. He's here corporately. We are the body of Christ. And just like he was anointed in his physical body, so the church needs to be anointed in its corporate body. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, the Lord Jesus in fact said to them, Acts 1, on this occasion when he was eating with them, he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem, but remain here and wait for the gift my father promised, by which you have heard me speak about. And in a few days from now, you will be baptised with the Spirit. Note those words. You will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. And of course, you know what happens in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. They are filled when the day of Pentecost came they were all together in one place and we want to pause there because we're about to launch into a very significant paragraph and I just want us to slow down and take note of a few essential things when did this happen well it's at Pentecost Pentecost means 50th it's 50 days after the beginning of Passover basically it came to Jewish tradition that it was in fact 50 days from when Israel went through the Red Sea, was saved and called out of Egypt, until they got to Sinai and God gave the law. That was a period of 50 days as well. And so Pentecost became the time of the remembrance of the giving of the law, as well as the 50 days of that second Jewish annual harvest. Just another interesting parallel. When God gave the law, they disobeyed it immediately and 3,000 people died. God gave the law, 3,000 people died. <clears throat> 50 days later, Pentecost, God gave the Spirit and 3,000 people are saved. We are saved by the Spirit, not by keeping the law. We're saved by the Spirit directing us to the Lord Jesus. Well, that's when it happened, 50 days, just like the Lord Jesus said. What did they do for those 10 days? Because you remember, when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared and disappeared with the disciples for how many days? 40. From 40 to 50, how many days are there? How many? So for 10 days, what were they doing? Acts chapter 1, they were praying. When the Lord Jesus got baptised and came out of the water, and Luke 4 tells us that he stood there and he was praying, and then the Holy Spirit came upon him. 
What was the church doing when the, church, when the Spirit came upon them? Praying. Interesting parallel again. When did it happen? Day of Pentecost. Where were they? They were all together in one place. And another verse, the next few verses go on to talk about a house. And I have always thought this was the upper room. This was the house in Jerusalem. I now think that's probably not correct. It's a slight leap and it's a little bit uncomfortable initially when you take it. The place where they are probably gathered together is in the temple. And even though the passage refers to a house in Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 47, Stephen will refer to the temple as a house, a house of God. So the place that I think, for three reasons, they're probably already gathered in the temple courts, and it would be in the court of the women, because Mary and other women are present, and there's 120 of them, but they're all together in one place. So men and women in the courts of the temple. Why do I think that? Well, because later on we're told that it's nine o'clock in the morning. At nine o'clock in the morning is a time of prayer. And we're told later on in Acts chapter two that every day they were meeting together in the temple courts. This is Pentecost. This is a special Jewish harvest. And so you went up to the temple to pray at nine, at 12 and at three. So because it's nine o'clock in the morning, I think it's very likely that they are in the temple courts because the text says, chapter 2, that they met every day in the temple and because 120 people will not fit comfortably into a house. Some houses are big enough to do that. But then it says that 3,000 people, over thousands of people came to hear them. Well, they most certainly did not fit into the house. They could be around it or whatever because we know that 3,000 people come to faith. I think it's far more likely that the place that they are meeting, it's not overly important, but we can make it perhaps significant spiritually. When God sent his spirit, he didn't send it upon the temple. He didn't send it to the holy place, to the holy of holies. He sent it on his people. Thus demonstrating the New Testament truth that we are now the temple of God. That this body is the temple of God. That when two or three gather together in his name, there is he in the midst. The church is not this building, the church is us. Those who gathered together and to meet together. That's good New Testament theology. The place is more than likely the temple. And I want you to imagine this. The city of Jerusalem is jammed full with extra people, millions of extra people. The city is overflowing. There are thousands of tents around the hills of Jerusalem as people are camping out, celebrating this wonderful feast. This was the biggest feast of the year, bigger than Passover. It was bigger than Passover because the season was more favourable to travel, particularly travel on the Mediterranean. And so you've got this huge crowd of people coming together and what's the experience that God gives them? They're all together in one place on the day of Pentecost and suddenly, I'm imagining they're in the court of the temple, suddenly they hear, they see and they do. What do they hear? They hear a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. They didn't feel the wind, they heard the sound. The ruach, the Hebrew word for wind, is a sound, that, a breath or a wind that can be heard. And we know how powerful winds can be, particularly in Queensland as we experience cyclones together, but even more powerful than that, other places of the world with hurricanes. Wind can move things. 
across roads and pull down buildings and all the rest of it. This is not a soft breeze, evening breeze. This is a very large sound indicating to us of a very mighty invisible force, a power is coming, Spirit of God. And not only do the 120 hear it, but others can hear it. It's almost like God saying, this is what I can do when everything seems hopeless and dead. And and in fact, in Ezekiel chapter 37, there is this wonderful parable, God challenging the prophet, he sees this valley of dry bones. Says to the prophet, can these people live? I don't know, Lord, you know. And he commands the bones to come together. Then he commands the flesh to come on them. And then the spirit comes and empowers them with breath. God can turn dead, hopeless situations into life. That's what his spirit can do. That's what his spirit wants to do through us into our world. Wants to do it in us and through us. So suddenly a sound they heard, like a violent mighty wind. It came from heaven. It's not from earth. That's from heaven down. This is something God is doing. And notice it says, the sound filled the whole house. House being meaning temple, that part of the temple where they were sitting. 120 people gathered together and God's spirit came powerfully upon them. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Heard the sound, then they saw a fire. And fire, of course, demonstrates in the Old Testament, if the Jews would have known their Old Testament, that the fire is the presence of God. What did Moses see? A burning bush, fire. It wasn't burning. What led the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years? Pillar of fire. Fire reminds them of the presence of God. Elijah on Mount Carmel, clear blue sky, prays to God and says, send the fire. And the fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice and the altar and the water around the altar. Fire is demonstrating as equivalent to the presence, the divine presence, God with them. They knew that God had come, that God was near, that God's power was coming down upon them. And then this fire which came together but then separates and a little tongue of fire goes on each one of the 120. doesn't burn them, doesn't singe them. It's something they saw. It's a vision demonstrating God's presence is on each one. God's power is anointing them. How we need that fire. And it's on each of them. United, but none are excluded. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, then you can receive, you will receive the Spirit. And the Spirit wants you to receive his power. None are excluded. Audible sign, visible sign. And then what do they do? It's a vocal sign. All of them, 120, filled. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you are baptised with the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes in power, he fills them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. Please note that. As the Spirit enabled them. Whenever you are filled with something physically, filled to overflowing, where does it come out? Ah. So too spiritually, when you are filled with God's spirit, something happens here, consistently through the New Testament. Every time you are filled with the Holy Spirit, something will happen with your mouth, consistently. I can't find one example in the New Testament where this does not happen. 
You read through the book of Acts carefully and take note. Sometimes it can be like this, speak in tongues. Tongues is not gibberish, it's not ecstatic utterance, tongues is a language. It's speaking a language you do not know. You don't speak it with your mind, you're speaking it through your spirit, a language. Something happens with your mouth. It could be praise, praising God. There's a combination of that here. They're using a language which they don't know to praise God. <clears throat> could be thanksgiving, Ephesians chapter 5. Could be prophecy, could be preaching, could be witnessing, could be sharing. Could be simply asking a question. Something will happen with your mouth when you are filled with the Spirit. It might even be, on rare occasions, just like the Lord Jesus was before the high priest and before Pilate, sometimes when you're filled with the Spirit, you'll be directed to be silent, not to speak. But usually, it's the other way. The Spirit filling us leads us to use our mouths to testify for him. Simples. The fact is, this is humanly impossible. God knows all languages. He invented them. All 6,000 or however many thousands of languages there are, and he speaks them all. What that, of course, means is that God is not English. Probably not even Australian. He's definitely not American. Could be Welsh. New Zealand. God bypasses the mind. They are speaking a language that they don't understand. Others understand it. They don't understand it. God bypassing the mind, but using their mouth to bring about his purposes. Just like God used a donkey. Impossible. But God can do it. I was a missionary to New Guinea 80 years ago. Something like that. Long time ago. He was being translated. He was an evangelist, German background, evangelist, preaching, translated. On the final night of the campaign, the translator was sick. And he prayed and God said, just go ahead and speak. And as he spoke, the words weren't coming out German, they were coming out being translated. He was speaking a language that he did not know, that he did not know how to speak. Happened once in his life. And God used, on that occasion, that's the only occasion I know of, where God has used a language like that to communicate the gospel to others. Normally, tongues, languages, is not used to preach. This is not preaching. Preaching's coming. This is praying. This is God's praying and declaring the praises and wonders of God. That's what tongues is. It's a prayer language. And so what I see manifested often in Pentecostal and charismatic churches, <clears throat> not wanting to, I'm just wanting to correct this, if someone speaks in a tongue and then it's translated and it turns out being a message, thus says the Lord, he wants you to do this, I would be very confident in saying that's not from God. God does not use tongues to communicate messages. He uses words of knowledge, words of wisdom, he uses prophecy, he uses teaching, he uses our language to communicate truth to us by his spirit. God uses the gift of tongues as a prayer and praise language. When we don't know what to pray for as we ought, we can pray, if you have this gift, I don't have the gift. I wish I had the gift because there are times I don't know what words to pray. I don't know what to say. And the people who have this gift have the wonderful opportunity to pray in tongues. And God, by, their, by his spirit, understands it and gives it, in fact. 
the Spirit gives them the words to say. So it's a great gift not to be disparaged, and it's not for everybody. But anyway, enough about that. I want you to notice the last bit. They spoke, having been filled with the Spirit, as the Spirit enabled them. That's to be our experience, as the Spirit enables us. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be theologically trained. you just got to be you. God made you. Just be who you are and speak the truth as honestly as you understand it. Will you make mistakes? Probably. Do I make mistakes? Yeah. We don't know everything. And God works with broken vessels. Let's move on. So it was audible, visual, vocal. That was the sign. And that's not repeated. The tongue sign is repeated, but the fire and the sound of the rushing wind is not repeated. This is a one-off event. This is the empowerment of the church, the launching of the church into mission. The above-us God of the Old Testament has become the with-us God of the Gospels, and he is now the in-us God of the New Testament. I love that expression. A German theologian wrote that. I've never forgotten it. The above-us God of the Old Testament, the one who was above and distant from us, has become the with-us God in Jesus. And now as we follow, receive and follow him, he becomes the in-us God of the New Testament. It's exactly what the Lord Jesus said. John 14, verse 17, is the spirit of truth. Tell the disciples, you know him, because he is with you, but he will be in you. It's hard to get geographical with a spirit, but the language tries to communicate that closeness and intimacy. If you know Jesus, if you've received him as Lord and Saviour, his spirit is in you. He's part of you and he will never leave you. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon, filled or baptised, came upon about 40 people. And when the spirit came upon them, whether it's Samson or a king or whoever, a prophet, Whenever the Spirit came upon them, it was for a period of time. It was temporary. Which is why David can pray in Psalm 51, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That is no longer applicable for us. When we have the Spirit, he is with us always. I don't want to go too much more into that. We can, but sometimes you'll feel his absence, but he's not absent. He's still with you. It's just quiet. And then it's, well, why is he quiet? What have I done or what haven't I done? Verse 5. <clears throat> so, when God fills us, he controls us. So the question becomes, does God have all of us? As Ryan Valley said last week, we, as we follow the Spirit's leading and opening doors and we walk through, we are simply joining a conversation the Spirit is already having with other people. It's not up to us. We don't have to create the opportunities. He does that. We just have to see them and respond to them as he leads us and to be giving that invitation for people to come. They were filled with the Spirit and they spoke as the Spirit enabled them. Now, who heard them? Now, there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. Some commentators, in fact, like to conjecture that there were people there from every, all of the 12 tribes of Israel that God had done something to bring that people and then he was going to scatter them again back into the world as evangelists for him. When the sound occurred, what sound? The rushing mighty wind sound. They heard it as well. A crowd came together in the temple courts 
And they became confused when they got there because they heard them speaking in their own language, in their own dialect. They were utterly amazed because they said, aren't all of those who were speaking Galileans? How did they know they were Galileans? Probably by the way they were dressed. Different people from different countries and different nationalities dressed in different ways. And you can tell by the way they're dressed. So they probably knew these guys were Galileans. And Galileans, uh, their reputation was they were uneducated, they're hicks, they're rednecks, they're, you know, yobbos. Should be called every second name Bubba. Aren't all of these speaking Galileans? Well, how are they articulating eloquently in our own dialects? How is that happening? They were confused about it. Um, in our own native language, fluently speaking, because it's not them. It's the Spirit of God speaking through them. Here is a list of all of the people where they're from, and it's basically when you examine it, it's from east to west and from north to south. Everybody is covered. I just wanted to point out to you two things. Number one, notice, I'm from Galilee, <clears throat> imagine, and I'm going to speak in a dialect that I don't know, and the tongue, the language that the Spirit of God gives me to do is Judean. Not much of a change, is it? In Galilee, I speak Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek. In Judea, they speak Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek. So that's like saying, I've got the gift of tongues and I'm speaking in a language, in a dialect, a dialect that I haven't understood. I'm speaking Victorian. Anybody here from Victoria? Don't want to offend anybody. You can tell the Victorians when they talk to you. They say things differently. Is that true? Yes. I'm from New South Wales, I know. <laughs> People from South Australia say words differently too. People from New Zealand say things differently. You can tell different regions by where people, the way they say certain things. And so even here, in people from, some people are speaking Judean. A Galilean speaking fluent Judean. Incredible. But notice the last bit. We hear them, what? Declaring the wonders of God in our own dialect. They weren't preaching. They were praising. They were declaring the wonders of what God has done. Tongues is a prayer language, not a preaching language. And most of the perplexed, they said, well, what does all of this mean? And of course, when you don't understand something, there's always going to be some people who are going to mock, who are going to resist. Some, however, made fun of them and said, ah, oh, they're just drunk. You ever heard somebody who was drunk Babylon? Some people become quite fluent, don't they, when they've had too many to drink? I'm yet to hear anybody speak another language fluently because they've had too much to drink. But I do know people who can rab it on because it loosens their lips. Of course, this is not the explanation of what's going on, and Peter had heard them. So Peter, in the court of the women, 120 people sitting down, praying in tongues, fluently to all these people who are coming and hearing them. Peter stands up. So did the eleven. And he raised his voice and he said, listen carefully. I've heard what you said. Let me explain to you what this is. Um, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. They haven't had too much to drink. Why? Because the pubs aren't open yet. That's what he would have said if he was in Australia. It's nine o'clock in the morning. It's far too early to be that inebriated. 
And technically, it says they drunk with, back in the other verse, it says drunk with too much wine. Technically, it's sweet wine. They drunk with sweet wine. You'd have to drink an awful lot of grape juice to get drunk. So Peter said, that's not the explanation. This is what Joel had prophesied and what we've been looking forward to for centuries. In the last days, Joel says, God says, I will pour out my spirit. Let's push the pause button for a second. When we talk about being filled or baptised by the Spirit, <clears throat> the New Testament uses these different words synonymously, equivalently. The context has to determine which one it is. But to be baptised with the Spirit can be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming on you, the Holy Spirit anointing you, the Holy Spirit empowering you. All of these phrases are used throughout the Scriptures. We're not talking about salvation when you receive the Spirit who is with you and now is in you. Not talking about that. We're talking about another experience that the Spirit gives you as it comes upon you for service, for empowerment. And that's not filling once, not twice, not three. It's daily. It's an ongoing experience of being filled with the Spirit. And on special occasions, you'll be anointed by the Spirit and you will say things, do things, that you can't normally do because it's not you it's the spirit in you doing it and so God Joel had prophesied that I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people men, women young and old slave and free no exceptions everybody is included when you receive Jesus you become a part of his family and you receive his spirit you can't be a follower of the Lord Jesus a Christian without having the spirit to not have the Spirit is not to be born again. They go together. We're not talking about that experience. We're talking about the Spirit coming on you. And the promise, until the Lord Jesus comes back, from his ascension until his return, the promise is still available to us that anybody who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. You can receive the Spirit. We've seen that demonstrated around us recently. There is a couple, I'm not sure if they're here this morning, uh, McGill and Louise. They might go to 10.30. Um, Louise is a nurse, a community nurse, and she cares for people. And there was a person, not a Christian, who had been given a diagnosis that he was going to die, had a week to live. This is in the last fortnight. And called one of us, and uh, Pastor David was available, so he went around and he prayed with this guy. His name's Paul. And Paul, in the last week or weeks of his life, uh, received Jesus to be his Lord and Saviour. Isn't that wonderful? But doesn't it give you a glimpse of what God is like? Even at the end of your life, the door is open. Even at the end of your life, God will still receive you and take you. That's what he did with, I trust my dad. Certainly he did do that with my mum. And we trust with Rhonda's mum and dad as well. Did it with Donna Turnbull's mum. Did it with Winnie's husband. Did it with a thief on the cross. But J.C. Ryle says this. There were two thieves on the cross. One was saved that all may hope. But only one that none may presume think about that one was saved so that all may hope while they're alive there is always hope that they can be saved but don't bank on it don't gamble by saying I'll wait till the very end and then I'll receive Jesus don't presume that'll happen for you because only one of the two made it at the end 
with Jesus on the cross. Far too many Christians are living on the right side of Easter and on the wrong side of Pentecost. I need to hurry. You need to let that sink into you. But people on the right side of Easter are those who they understand and believe the death and resurrection of Jesus. They know their Bibles. They pray. They believe in the Lord Jesus. But somehow... They don't get it, they don't understand it, they're not experiencing it, they're not filled with a spirit to overflowing till their mouth is God's instruments. But the promise still holds good, as we'll get to next week, that God will give us his spirit, that he will fill us. Ball's in our court. He won't make us be filled with a spirit, he invites us to be filled with a spirit. Now, People are now God's spirit. I spoke about that before. Holy Spirit came upon people, not the temple. There's a movement in Acts from private to public, and that's to be for us. This is the stage of the kingdom that we're now up to. In Acts chapter 1, they're meeting together in a house. It's private. In Acts chapter 2, they're in the temple in public, and they're being sent out. And that's to be our direction. We are to be going out, individually, personally, committed to God every day. But connecting with one another on the inside and concerned for others on the outside at every opportunity. God will not feel what he does not have. Does he have all of you? Do you want to be filled with the Spirit? I'd love to pray with you this morning for exactly that. What do you need to do? Well, here are some hints the New Testament gives us. This is going to be way too quick. Romans 12.1, present yourself to God. God, here I am. Take me, fill me. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anybody wants to come after me, deny yourself. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Take up your cross and come follow me. We're also told... In Luke 11:13, if you then are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father who loves you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You want to be filled with the Spirit? Ask him. Present yourself, humble yourself, Lord, fill me. And here's an interesting one, Acts 5:32. God gives the Spirit to those who obey him. Make sure your obedience is up to date. Is there anything God has asked you to do that you haven't done? And until you do it, you won't be able to experience the filling of the Spirit. So repent, humble yourself, turn back to him and ask him, fill me, Lord. Let me sense your nearness and closeness. May God help us to find our voice, just like God helped them to find their voice. The early church had a new presence, the risen Lord, and a new power by his Spirit living in them. And may we, by God's grace, have exactly the same. Time is gone. If you would like a pastor or an elder to pray for you this morning, then we'll be waiting at the front for you. Of course, you can pray for each other right where you're seated. But if you come forward for prayer or to share, come and ask for to be filled with the Spirit. We'll pray with you. Then we'll do that at the end. Let's stand together and let's finish our service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have been looking at and understand your plan and your desire. That you want your church spirit-filled, anointed and baptised by the empowered by the Spirit. 
so that you can use our mouths to achieve your kingdom purposes. Lord, here we are standing in your presence. May you have your will and your way in each of our lives. Go before us, Lord, into the days of this week. Nudge us hard to be right with you. Lord, come, breathe your spirit upon us, breathe your life into us and through us. Set us on fire that the world might come and watch us burn. Lord, bless us and go before us. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Don't forget to go to the lost and found table and if you'd like prayer, come forward.